Welcome to the Appalachia Reformation Network. I'm your host, Kelly Baldridge, and joining me today is Sean Morris, and I'm going to be talking with Sean about an important topic today. There are theological issues happening in our churches, in our world, that we need to be aware of and to be ready for as we face these challenges to the gospel and to gospel issues And so I'm happy to speak with Sean about these things today. And so, Sean, thank you for joining us. And let's go ahead and get started. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Glad to be here. Yeah, one of the goals that we have uh, for the Appalachia Reformation Network and for this podcast is is really just to serve as a resource for the average person in the pew. And I, I think one of the ways that we can serve in this regard is maybe to make people aware of some of the issues that are facing the church in our day and age that maybe they're not aware of, or maybe they've heard of these things, and they just don't have the parameters or the categories in which to think of the, about these things. And, and as, as you've talked about in uh, some of our previous episodes, the, the relative isolation uh, that can happen in rural contexts, it's entirely possible that some of the folks listening to this podcast or some of the church members uh, that we want to pass the podcast along to. Maybe they've not heard of this thing, or they they didn't realize that it really is such a big deal uh, that some of these things are infiltrating uh, the church or the church is facing them. So hopefully this this brief conversation will just raise their awareness and give them hopefully a, a couple of categories uh, in, in which to think about uh, some of these things. So uh, some of these things are more culturally related. Some of these things are more theologically related. And uh, here, here's just a few brief ones uh, that, that come to my mind. These are things that I'm seeing playing out in in some regards in my neck of the woods, in my part of the country, in my particular denomination, and maybe you're seeing it play out in a slightly different way, and, and it'd be good for us to talk about these things too. But, you know, you and I both have a heart for missions. You and I have, have uh, involvement in missions in a variety of capacities, and I think that's one of the things the church is facing uh, in our generation is thinking about what missions actually is from a biblical standpoint. And I think there's a whole lot of confusion uh, in in this regard. I I think that generations previous to ourselves would have understood missions in a rather narrow sense, in in the terms of sending out ordained elders or ordained ministers to go evangelize unreached people who had not yet heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and eventually, God willing, planting and establishing churches and congregations in those places. Uh, where there's a relative dearth of the gospel. That, that narrowly speaking, and generally speaking, I think, is how our grandfather's generation would have understood what missions is. Uh, but these days, I'm not sure what, what, what your church runs into, but these days we've got letters and applications coming to our church all the time from various people soliciting funds to support them in what they're calling missions. And everything seems to qualify for missions these days, whether it's church planting, uh, whether it's going to Africa to do uh, evangelistic work, those are more traditional categories I think we would see. But then there's everything else from, hey, I'm going over to teach English as a second language in this particular country. I'm not really going to be doing church work of any sort. I'm just going to teach English to these kids and get to know them. Would you give me uh, mission support for that kind of effort? Or, hey, I'm serving as a uh, chaplain to a... Uh, a college-level gymnastics team in the Czech Republic, uh, would you give me missions money uh, to support me in this endeavor? 
And so I think that's something that the church really has to grapple with in, in Baptist context and Presbyterian context and all kinds of contexts of there are many good things that Christians can be doing, and there are many noble causes uh, that Christians should be undertaking. But whether or not the label, the biblical category of missions or mission applies to that endeavor is a whole different issue that I think we really need to give serious consideration to uh, and, and to wrestle with. Uh, how about you? Do, you? do you see some confusion about some of this uh, when thinking about what biblical missions is uh, in your context or maybe in the wider Appalachia context? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is actually a very important subject, so I'm glad you mentioned this. Uh, missions uh, is important to remember that there is a priority of the local church in missions, uh, that the church is the, the one who received the great commission that Christ gave. Uh, Christ gave it to the church. And we can argue uh, and say, well, you know, he gave it to the apostles. But if you remember, part of that was to teach all that Christ has commanded to the church. In other words, uh, it's being passed down from the apostles to the church throughout the ages. And so that mission is given to the church through what is being taught by those apostles. And so the priority is given to the local church in the mission's understanding. And in Appalachia, though, it is easy for us to get involved in uh, serving the poor, serving those who, who need food, and to forget what the mission actually is. Uh, our church in particular, we have a great ministry to those who could benefit from an extra box of food a month. And so we're able to do that. But that's not the mission of the church. That is an implication of the gospel. It's an implication of the mission, uh, but it in itself is not the mission. And so it's very easy for us to lose focus on that. But rather for us, uh, we want to do uh, missions in the local church based on what we would call the means of grace. Uh, another podcast down the road, we'll probably talk about the means of grace. But sure, yeah. Pull it up, three things, the word, the ministry of the word, uh, sacraments, that is the Lord's Supper and baptism, so we can call them ordinances, if you like, or, or and prayer. And uh, one missionary I've talked to recently uh, mentioned to me this idea that, you know, John Piper once said that uh, missions exist because worship doesn't. Mm. And there's a sense where he also said, too, um, Missions exist because word, sacraments, and prayer doesn't mm. uh, yet. And so even within the people we're serving in Appalachia, we're feeding and, and clothing and, and doing whatever we can to help them in these issues. E even, even agencies, there's so many groups that are, are um, doing rehabilitation for those who have been caught into the opioid um, and you know, other drug-related issues, alcoholism or whatever it may be, those themselves are not missions, so to speak. Uh, they deal with uh, issues that are related to gospel matters, but they themselves are not performing the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to evangelize the gospel. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And as we've been saying, there's there's a lot of good and noble things that the church is undertaking and should undertake. That we care about the whole person. We care about their body and soul wellness uh, as part of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. But 
it's simply a misapplication of the label of mission. Uh, and, and some of those examples that you just gave to me, those would fit under the category of deeds of mercy or deeds of charity, uh, but not deeds of mission. That's just a different category. It's not that it's unimportant. It's just not the right label for it. Exactly. So th I think that's one thing that's facing the church in these in these days. Another one that, that comes to mind, and this one has been kind of percolating and, and, and bubbling for a few years now, but it really all has to do with the doctrine of God. Um, you know, some folks, and this is a, it's a little bit heady, uh, it, or at least it can be, but I think in the way that we'll describe it, there, there is a, a practical implication or ramification that is affecting church folks. Um, some folks may, listening to this podcast, may have heard of what's called the eternal subordination of the sun controversy or eternal functional subordination. Uh, this has been kind of bubbling for about five or six years now, uh, but really it all boils down to the doctrine of God, how we understand who God is, how we understand him as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does the Bible teach us about who God is in his three persons? How does the Father relate to the Son? And how we answer that question has immense implications uh, really for our Christian faith, for how we relate to God, because depending on how we answer that question, and unfortunately, the way some folks have been answering that question, the end result conclusion, it turns out, is God can change based on what you do, or your actions can change God's mind. He's malleable. He's impressionable. He's manipulatable. Uh, that is bad news, if that were if that is true. That is bad news. And so we want to be very careful uh, in thinking about this. How we understand who God is is going to affect how we worship him, how we approach him. It's going to affect how we do missions. It's going to, it's going to affect how we uh, structure our congregations. Um, you know, the Puritans have this old saying that the living of this life is but a preparation for the life to come. And I think that's a good aphorism. And so then that means, I think, that we want to work hard in this life to understand God accurately as best we can as he's revealed himself to us in his word. We want to better understand God because we love him. You know, in the same way that, you know, you and I are both married. We, we love our wives. And part of loving our wives means knowing about her. What is she like? What does she dislike? Uh, what are things that get her excited? What are things that bother her? What are her interests, right? That's part of loving her is knowing her accurately, not loving a version of her that we've made up in our head. Uh, you know, I, I may think that my wife loves cucumber salad and I make a cucumber salad for her for lunch one day, but it turns out she actually hates cucumbers. Uh, I've made up a version of her in, in my mind that isn't actually the realistic depiction of her. And I'm trying to relate to her in a way that she's not terribly going to appreciate. I think that analogy can apply to God. We want to understand God rightly. And so because we love him, and so we want to understand him accurately, not a version of God that we wish were true. And so some of these developments that we've seen in recent years in terms of the doctrine of God, they can tend, if they're not careful, to go all the way into a realm of bad theology that some folks know as open theism. God doesn't know the future. God is surprised when bad things happen, just like you and I are surprised when bad things happen. And so he's suffering with us in those catastrophes. Um, that's a very different conception of the God that I see as scripture depicts him as a God who is sovereign and almighty, who has determined things from, from eternity past, uh, who is God, who is not affected by creatures actions, but he is only affected when he wills himself to be affected. And that kind of sovereignty gives me an immense amount of comfort. So there's a few guys that have been doing important work in this regard. Uh, folks like James Dolezal is a good reformed Baptist brother, uh, has been doing good uh, corrective work in this regard. Um, 
folks like Matthew Barrett, another good Baptist brother, has been doing important work in this regard. And so some of the books they've written are very academic and technical, but some of the books they've written are very accessible to the layperson, and they really helpfully lay out the problems of here's some of the misunderstandings that folks have had in recent years about who God is, and here's the classic understanding of who God is as we've been handed down from uh, the ancient church fathers and the Reformation, and really ultimately from Scripture itself. So that can be a little bit more of a theoretical kind of thing, but we're seeing some of those things play out even in the lives of Christians as to how they are misunderstanding the character of God. And that can give people a whole lot of angst, I think, in terms of their own relationship with him and the sense of their own salvation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and not to mention that this is a violation of the first commandment, right? Mm. Uh, to have no other gods. Uh, and really even the third commandment, uh, it's really to speak of God in a vain way. Uh, to to misunderstand how God reveals Himself in Scripture, and and so it's that important, you know, it's it's that important that God has told us who He is in, in the Scriptures, and to understand it in that way. To um, let, let me ask you, do you think that holding to a confession of faith, and, and maybe one one episode in the future we'll talk about confessionalism, okay. holding to a confession of faith understanding certain standards for instance the westminster shorter catechism deals with some of these things the larger catechism deals with some of these things as well as the confession of faith itself do you think that holding to these standards would help us defend against some of these things that are being taught i certainly think so um there's a couple of things to say in that regard sometimes people have a a reaction when they hear that and they say oh you guys are placing these creeds and confessions of the church as more important or higher than the Bible. And, and we want to very quickly say, no, we're not. The Bible alone is the word of God. The Bible alone is inerrant and infallible. These creeds and confessions were written by very gifted men, very godly men, but they are not inerrant and infallible the way the Bible is. Only the Bible is that which we can speak of in those kinds of terms. It is above all else. It, the Bible corrects and norms all these other things. Now, having said that, we would all do ourselves a big favor if we could just admit that we are arrogant and ignorant to think that we are not influenced and impacted by the generations that have come before us. And that is, it is a, a fruitless endeavor to try and reinvent the wheel. We are standing on the shoulders of giants, of, of our theological forebearers, uh, not just a generation or two ago, but we're talking like men like Polycarp, who was discipled by the Apostle John. We are inheriting theological legacies from the church down through the ages. We don't want to reinvent Christianity for our own day. We want to keep subscribing and keep promoting the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says. And so we want to take their insights. They've, if they've done the grunt work and the hard work for us and wrestling through these issues, I, I don't know about you or all of our other listeners, but I want to learn from that. I want to benefit from that. I don't want to reinvent the wheel if they've already done it. And so I like the analogy that someone else told me once that the creeds and confessions are like guardrails on the highway, right? The Bible alone is like your car. It needs to do the driving. The guardrails don't do the driving for you. You need to put your foot on the gas pedal and move the car down the highway. Thinking of the Bible as that vehicle, it has to move down the highway. It has to impress on people's hearts the truths of God. But the Bible requires interpretation. Uh, as we read the Bible, certain judgment calls have to be made. And so even though you have to do the driving of the car, I'm very glad if I'm driving in a dangerous mountain pass that there are guardrails on the side of the road that keep me from falling off that road. They don't do the driving for me. 
but they guide me and they protect me and they keep me from making a serious dunderheaded or stupid move in terms of my driving. The creeds and the confessions are like that with the Bible. They give us parameters, they give us categories, they guide us and they protect us from going off kilter and, and veering off into the realm of heresy or inaccurate teaching. So they provide, uh, they, they provide structure to that roadway to keep us on the straight and narrow to make sure that we're teaching truthfully and not erroneously. And so they're not a replacement for the Bible, but they are very much helpful supplements for the living of the Christian life. Uh, that's very good. Maybe we don't need to do that episode now. <laughs> um, and then, you know, as, as we're kind of winding things down towards the close, there's really just a, a third issue that I thought we would want to, to bring to our, our listeners' attention. At, at first, I thought that this, was, this might be two issues, but it's not. I, the more I think about it, it's really just two facets of uh, one issue. I think that most Christians listening to this podcast would, uh, would not doubt for a minute of the, the rampant onslaught of the LGBTQ movement that we're seeing in our culture and in the church. You know, today, as we're recording this, it's early June. We're right in the midst of Pride Month. It is all over the news. It's all on our social media feeds. It's in our faces. There's no avoiding it. And so folks might be tempted to think, ah, the, the LGBTQ movement, the new sexual revolution is the big crisis facing the church today. And, and I, can, I can appreciate that to an extent. But I, I think, though, that the LGBTQ movement is really just a symptom of a larger trend, a problematic trend that's actually not that new. It's just coming to a, a, a particular expression in our cultural moment. Um, the LGBTQ movement, on the one hand, is one symptom of this. Uh, other folks might say the, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is a symptom of this. It's just, and it really is, I think it, it belongs under the same category. It's not a problem in and of itself. It's just a symptom of a larger trend. Um, other folks might say the big problem facing the church today, uh, if it's not LGBTQ, if it's not uh, movements like uh, Black Lives Matter, they might say, oh, well, it's, it's the church's captivity to politics and to the Republican Party. And again, I can, I can appreciate that critique, but once again, I think all three of those are just examples or symptoms of a wider overarching movement. And actually, a, a book that I want to commend to our listeners is a recent book that uh, a man that, that we both uh, appreciate very much, Carl Truman. Carl Truman has written this recent work called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And the subtitle of it is Cultural Amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. And Carl, I, I have not finished reading this book. I'm in the midst of reading this book, but he really lays out and charts for us the path of how we got where we are, right? People are saying culture is a mess, the church is a mess, and they're right to say that, but it didn't just spring up out of nowhere. Uh, folks will think, ah, see, the, the LGBTQ movement is trying to destroy the church ever since they got the right uh, to marriage in 2015 handed down by the Supreme Court. Uh, well, no. It, it's not just from 2015 that these problems arose. It goes way back, and I think Carl very helpfully traces out um, the development of these ideas, uh, the rise of rabid individualism that we can find even way back in the thought of men like Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, and uh, Sigmund Freud, the psychologization of the individual, that I am my own determiner of my own destiny. And so if that is true, and I hold to that, then anything goes. And so that has become the mantra of our modern society. I am the determiner of my own destiny. I am my own morally autonomous agent. And so therefore, that may come to expression in the sense of an LGBTQ 
lifestyle, or that may come to expression in and locking our arms with a, a, a BLM movement that may come to expression in, in locking our arms with a, a, a political movement and think and, and, and how that comes to expression is folks will say, in the church, we need to be promoting these things because this is the new identity for so-and-so. So from the church's pulpit, we need to be giving messages of affirmation regarding LGBTQ issues. From the church's pulpit, we need to be giving messages of affirmation regarding uh, Black Lives Matter. From the church's pulpit, we need to be giving messages of affirmation um, with regard to how we ought to vote and the direction that we need to take this country. And again, those are all just symptoms of that larger trend. By divorcing ourselves and our collective identity from the, the church Catholic, uh, from the church universal, that is, that we've inherited down through the ages, by thinking of myself not as one man embedded within a wider society uh, whose existence is owed to and dependent upon a God bigger than myself, but instead thinking of myself as a morally autonomous agent charting my path forward to whom, and I'm accountable to no one, well, then any of these things uh, can come to fruition. So I think if, if a person is able to get their hands on this book, it's going to open their eyes in a lot of ways. And it's not the be-all and end-all answer. I don't think Dr. Truman intended for it to be that, but he provides a very helpful bibliography of further reading that people can do to research more on these issues. And I think that they it, it will be enlightening to us to see that these problems that the church is faced with, they didn't start in 2015 or 2016. Heck, they didn't even start in the 1960s. It goes way back, far deeper than that, in some cases, even back to the Middle Ages, and we're still reaping the ramifications of that. But if we can better understand and even push back against our cultural tendency towards a hyper-individualism and start adopting more of a biblical mindset and a biblical worldview about how we understand ourselves as people, I don't know that that's going to turn the tide tomorrow in terms of the way our society is going, but I think it'll help strengthen the church and help bulwark ourselves against uh, the coming cultural headwinds against us, for sure. Oh, that's excellent um, description of that. Yeah, many Christians are, are dealing with this. I think we've, we've become aware of it, as you mentioned, the month we're in even. These are issues that the church is facing today, and we are thankful that the Lord uh, in his word tells us that nothing will prevail. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. It's good to remember that the church is also the church militant, that we are to battle against these things. When we hear of these issues, these are not issues to, to think of and, and, and just to be aware of as we are making ourselves aware of these things. But we need to know these things so that we can actually fight against these things, so that we can protest against these things, so that we can continue on uh, proclaiming the truth and being stalwarts of the truth. Uh, and, and not backing up or, or shying away from or even conceding to our cultural issues. And, and really, quite frankly, it, it's a wonderful thing that you can say these are things that have existed for years because it does mean that the church has battled these things before. Yes, history repeats itself, and we're having to face some of the same battles in different expressions but the good news is, is that we've we've had these battles before and we've seen them won and we'll win again because we're guaranteed it. Yes. And the church through all of it has not been snuffed out. Christ has continued to build his church and he's continued to, to preserve her and persevere her. And he will continue to do so until he comes again. Yeah. Amen. Amen. 
I think for, for this episode, that is good. This has been helpful. Uh, these are issues that we need to be aware of in the church, not only in the church broadly, but especially in Appalachia. Sometimes the things that happen in our world do not get to Appalachia right away. Right. But we need to be aware of these things so that we can combat them when they get here. Right. And, and really to be on the offensive to, to prepare ourselves for that. So, Sean, thank you for sharing. Thank you for introducing a few of these things to us. And so we're, we're thankful to, to provide this as a, a good conversation piece as we consider how to combat uh, these errors that are happening. This is the Appalachia Reformation Network. Thank you again for joining us on today's episode.